you've got a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, this morning we're going to be actually closing out this short series that we've been in on marriage and family. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, these are, I hope, becoming uh, familiar, a familiar text to you if it wasn't already. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and this is what he says. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Pray with me. Father, would you give us understanding of uh, this passage? Uh, would you challenge us in ways that we need to be challenged? Uh, would you open our hearts and our minds uh, to hear from you this morning? For this we ask in the very precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Ever try to drive a car without oil? If you have, you didn't get very far, uh, simply because there's a lot of friction going on there and a lot of heat's being generated. And if you don't have oil to lubricate those cylinders, what's going to happen is your engine's going to seize and you'll be buying a, a new engine or a new vehicle or some such thing because your engine's no good anymore. A couple of weeks ago, I said that marriage is covenantal. Uh, it is, in other words, a binding contract, or it's a relationship that we enter into that's based on promises that the husband makes to the wife and the wife makes to the husband. Now, what that means, I argued uh, a couple of weeks ago, was that marriage is more about actions, actually, than it is about feelings. Uh, in any particular moment when you get married, you have pledged to do certain things for your spouse, loving things. Things like having and holding, that means staying connected from this day forward. For better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Now, if you think about it, none of those things are feelings. All of those things are things that we do, in fact, regardless how we feel. Now, I said uh, in a sermon uh, back a few weeks that, that marriage is not just covenantal, it's also confrontational. Marriage is confrontational. It's supposed to be a safe place to confront sin and to grow, grow to be more like Jesus. But confronting sin, as we have talked about, causes friction. It generates heat, if you will. 
So how do you confront one another and keep the marriage a healthy uh, relationship that's moving forward? That's kind of a huge question if you think about it. How do you relate to one another in ways that enable each other to grow, to make progress in becoming more like Jesus? And the answer is this. You practice submitting to one another. You practice dying to yourself. Sound good? You want to hear more about this or are we done? Now, another way of saying that is you practice having a servant's heart toward your spouse. That's what you practice. Verse 21 said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that is actually talking to all of us, regardless whether we are married, because in any relationship that you are called into, if you are representing Jesus to this other person, one of the things you are doing is serving them, and you serve them oftentimes by submitting yourself to what they want or where they want to go or uh, not doing something they don't want to do, etc. Now, of course, this is all the more true in a marriage. You deepen a relationship by submitting to one another, or in other words, by having and developing a servant's heart. That's how you deepen a relationship. Your best relationships will always be with people who have willingly served you or people that you have willingly served. And this is obviously true in a marriage. Good marriages are marriages where the spouses are learning uh, to get better and better at serving one another. So here in this chapter in the book of Ephesians, Paul describes how husbands and wives do that, how they serve one another. Paul says in verse 22 and 23, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So it's interesting, just as there is authority in the church and Jesus has that authority, so also there is authority in a family. In the church, Jesus is in charge. In the church, Jesus is the head. In the church, Jesus has authority. And so Paul says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so this is pretty clear. Wives, you must submit to your husbands in everything. So husbands, you need to be clear when you give your orders. You know, this is what I want. This is when I want it. Uh, this is how I want it. I want my house cleaned this way. I want my laundry done that way. I want my meals cooked the way my mother cooks them. Uh, I want to watch TV when I want to watch TV. I want snacks made when I'm watching my favorite football games. Uh, I want the kids quiet if there are kids in the picture. I want them out of my hair when I need to relax. And oh yeah, by the way, sex. I'd like to have sex as often as I want sex when I'm not tired. I think that's what Paul is saying here in the book of Ephesians, right? I mean, Paul does say the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Question, what does Jesus do with his headship over the church? What does his headship look like? And Paul doesn't leave us to guess at this. He's actually quite clear. He tells us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. 
So Jesus gave himself up for the church. That is, he died for the church. He uses his headship, his authority, in a sacrificial manner. And that's actually the marvelous mystery of Jesus and the Father and, and the Holy Spirit, that there is a God who is indeed holy and righteous and glorious and powerful and just, who is also sacrificially good and kind and forgiving and loving and merciful. Paul tells us that Jesus gave himself up for the church precisely because that is what the church needed most. We needed saving from our sinful condition. The church, Jesus' bride, as we've talked about this, it's broken, it's battered. It's got open sores and wounds, spiritually speaking. It's, it's beaten. The church is in bondage to sin if they have no one to save them from it. Sin is killing us is the point. Sin is spread, separating us from Almighty God for all eternity if someone doesn't save us from this dilemma. So we need a deep down solution to our sin. And Jesus sees this. He sees this in us. There's nothing lovely in us, but for our own good, our own cleansing, our own holiness, our own spiritual well-being, our own moral beauty and perfection, Jesus decides to die for us, his bride, to lay down his life for us, to pay for our sins, because that is what we desperately need most, each and every one of us. Jesus uses his headship as our husband to serve us, even to the point of laying down his life. And that right there is exactly what husbands are supposed to do in the exercise of their authority, in the exercise of their headship. We are supposed to be like Jesus and serve our brides, lay down our lives for our brides. Now, why? Well, lots of reasons, actually. Lots of reasons. I'm not even going to be able to get into all of them. But interestingly, not because our death does something spiritual for her, not because uh, uh, we are in some capacity able to pay for her sins. We, like them, have a huge sin problem. We, like them, need someone to pay for our sins, to rescue us from our deep, wounded, spiritual brokenness and rebellion against God. We can't save ourselves, let alone save our spouse. Not possible. So what does our dying do in a marriage relationship? Well, it's just that when we die to self, when we serve our spouses by dying to self, whether through that submitting to them or laying down our lives for them, we are demonstrating how Jesus serves and loves his bride, the church, you. That's what Paul has developed, that very idea in this passage. Jesus said one time to his disciples, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a payment for many. So here's the point. A wife's role in the marriage is to demonstrate the love of the church for Jesus by submitting to and respecting her husband. There's no way around that if you're going to read the Bible and take it for what it says. Now that, of course, for the wife is going to feel like dying to self. Because it is. That's exactly what it is. 
And a husband's role in marriage is to exercise his authority by sacrificial service, by giving himself up for the bride, not by making selfish demands, not by giving orders, not by demanding respect or obedience, but by denying himself and sacrificially serving his bride. And that, of course, will feel like dying to self precisely because it is. This is what we do in a marriage. We die to self. And here's the bottom line, friends. If you want to have a growing, healthy marriage, you will need to be developing a servant's heart, a heart that is like that of Jesus Christ. Wives, you have to learn to serve your husbands by respecting him, through submitting to him. You'll have to learn how to show your husband that he matters to you that he is more important to you than than your parents are or your children are or your friends are or your personal preferences are. You will have to demonstrate to him that you respect him above all others. What exactly will that look like for you? I don't know. Figure it out with Jesus' help. Husbands, you'll have to love your wives by putting her interests before your own. You will have to love your wife by setting the pace spiritually in your home because that's what she needs most, so that's what you've got to help provide. You've got to care for her spiritual well-being as much as you should be caring for your own, and therein lies a big problem, right? A lot of us as husbands aren't caring for ourselves spiritually, let alone our wives, and that's a huge problem in marriage. This is really what Paul is driving at when he says, let each one of you, he's talking to husbands, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There you go. There's both parts that I just mentioned. Wives respecting their husbands and husbands loving their wives sacrificially. This is what should have happened in the garden long, long ago when Eve got the terrible, sinful idea to take a bite out of the forbidden fruit. Bad idea. She was disrespecting Adam as well as her God. When Adam went right along with Eve and the whole scheme of things, he was not caring about Eve at all. He wasn't caring about her sanctification. He wasn't caring about her spiritual growth or well-being. Uh, He wasn't caring about her being washed with the word of God. In fact, I would interpret from the text that because of Eve's misunderstanding about what God had exactly said about the fruit, Adam hadn't been very clear in telling her. Huge problem. Adam wasn't concerned about her splendor or spiritual beauty. He wasn't concerned about her being holy and without blemish. Adam should have said, Eve, let's not do this. This is disobeying God. This is breaking our covenant with our maker and our God. This is wrong. If you do this, I will not do it with you. If you do this, you will surely die. Just as God has told us. You see, that that would have been serving Eve, lovingly speaking the truth to her. That would have been loving her. That would have been leading in that moment well. That would have been leading with a servant's heart. But Adam failed to lead sacrificially. He failed to, to lovingly speak the truth to his wife. And as I said, I'm guessing he failed to tell Eve accurately what God had told him. Should have been a lot more conversation with Eve about what God had told Adam what to do with this fruit, the forbidden fruit. 
That's what a servant's heart would have been doing. Now, in our sinful, fallen world, I would argue that the only way to make a marriage work the way it's supposed to work is to serve your spouse sacrificially. And to the degree that you are not doing that, well, I'm guessing your marriage is dysfunctional. Serving your spouse sacrificially means all kinds of things, of course. You couldn't even delineate all of them here this morning. But certainly it means receiving and hearing criticism when your spouse offers it to you and receiving that without being crushed, without being defensive. Because your goal is to grow spiritually and become more like Jesus, and it's your spouse's job to help you do that. Serving your spouse sacrificially means giving criticism without crushing In other words, giving criticism with humility, giving criticism lovingly, giving criticism with lots of grace. Forgiving without lingering anger or bitterness is a part of serving your spouse with a servant's heart. Desiring to improve, to get better in the art of loving your spouse, that too is part of having a servant's heart. That is what a servant wants to do. Improve, get better. In this case, specifically, become more like the ultimate servant, Jesus himself. And if you aren't developing a servant's heart toward your spouse, my guess is you're developing an angry, bitter, frustrated, and resentful heart. One that sees your spouse as 90% of the problem. If he or she would just change, man, we'd have a great marriage. (laughs) If they would just change. And if that's your thinking, I would say you don't stand much of a chance of having a good or healthy marriage at all. Having a servant's heart enables you to get your mind off of yourself, your wants, your preferences, your grievances, your joy, your happiness, and onto bigger, more important things. Glorifying God in your marriage would be one of them. Dying to self would be another Blessing your spouse by loving them the way that Jesus loves you day in, day out, which is sacrificially. So key question, how do you grow a servant's heart? And there are probably many answers. I'm going to give you two. Uh, If your marriage is stuck, I mean really stuck. If your marriage is, is, if you would describe it as just a constant battleground. If your marriage is filled with bitterness and anger and resentment, if, if there's a lack of trust and a lack of intimacy in your marriage, if your marriage has not received the priority attention that it's supposed to be receiving, that it certainly absolutely needs, then I would tell you, you probably need someone to help you get unstuck. You probably need professional help. You, you need someone who is, a, who is a Christian, who loves Jesus Christ, who believes the Bible is true and would be willing to sit down with you and over probably a fairly long period of time sort things out, get a biblical perspective, look at you and your sin as well as your spouse and his or hers, and then try to put this thing together in its proper order and proper manner, meaning build back with the foundation being that of a servant's heart. That's probably uh, what's needed. And that would be one answer. And none of us like that answer. I've hated the, the few times that Holly and I have gone to counseling. 
I, I went the, the whole way just thinking, I'm not going to like this. This is not going to be good. This is not going to be fun. I don't really want to do this. I just did it because I was convicted that that is what God wanted me to do. And that is what we needed to do. Now, on, on the other hand, here's the other answer. On the other hand, if your marriage is normal, what do I mean by normal? Well, what I mean is you're not spending time together working on your marriage. You're not talking or reading together or praying together or connecting together or repenting of sins like you should be. Arguing is happening a little too often. Family busyness is through the roof and giving you lots of excuses as to why you can't work on your marriage. If intimacy is not great in your marriage, well, then you need to change your priorities and your practices. You need to schedule time together. And that can look in a hundred different ways. It can be anything from date nights to walks together to evening prayers. I mean, times to talk and process life together is what I'm saying. We've all got lots of reasons. You know, here's the interesting thing. The relationship that needs the most work often, almost always gets the least attention. Because it's the easiest relationship to ignore. Until you can't ignore it any longer. Until the misery level in your life has gone so high, you can't stand it. We got to do something, right? But here's the thing. You've got to change priorities. You've got to schedule time to, to, to do the hard work. Things like reading the word of God together, letting it inform you. That's not a magic tablet of any, of any kind. It's not going to immediately fix anything, but you've got to reorient the way you look at yourself and the way you look at your spouse and the way you look at the problems you're having. You've got to schedule time to talk to God whenever that works. You've got to practice together repenting of your sin and apologizing to one another. You've got to develop right rhythms together as a couple which impact your family. And we've told you over and over and over, and we'll keep telling you, we think right rhythms are not that complicated. One thing they involve is this, worshiping weekly together, vitally important for you and for your children if you have them. Worship reorients us. It, when you come to worship, you hear pastors talking about garbage like this. We don't want to hear it but we need to. It's what we do in worship in addition to, to orienting ourselves towards giving God glory and acknowledging how much we need him, his salvation, his constant, ever-present help. We need worship. We need connection with other Christians who will pray for us, who understand our struggle because they've been there, they've had those struggles or are having them, and they're, they're just like us. And then we need, we need to serve. We can't be so honed in on ourselves and our problems that we don't seek to serve others. So it's up and out. That's what it is. That's a rhythm that you need in your life and your family. It's something you need to be committed to. It's a priority. See, here's the thing. When we do stuff like that, and we do it consistently, and we do it deliberately, and we do it attentively together with a spouse, the Holy Spirit will use those kinds of things to grow us up. He will help us die to self. He will help us love our spouse sacrificially and figure out what that looks like. He will give us an awareness of our own problems and our own sin and of Jesus' work on our behalf. Because it's that last thing, a deeper awareness of Jesus' work 
on our behalf that, quite frankly, is the one thing that will change us deeply. When we reflect on and stay grounded in what Jesus does for me today. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. You see, when a person is filled with the Spirit of God, they are in touch with reality. Reality is the way things really are, the way things really work. And that means that that person sees not only the sin of others, which that is easy to see, but it helps us to see the sin in us. That is not easy to see. And when we're filled with the Spirit, we realize that what Jesus has done and continues to do for us is really, frankly, just everything. Everything we need. Knowing Jesus that way changes your outlook. Changes how you enter into difficult situations and circumstances. It changes your personal identity because your identity becomes rooted and grounded in him. Not other things. Not Facebook. Not how many people like you. It changes your emotional stability when you're rooted and grounded in what Jesus has said about you and what Jesus has done for you. Now you can give and receive criticism in a healthy way. You can control your anger and control your tongue or ask for forgiveness and repent when you don't. You can keep things in better perspective. This is developing in us what the Bible calls the mind of Christ. The apostle Paul used that phrase in writing to the church at Corinth. He said to them, we have in us the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. It's something that the the Spirit of God forms in us as we deliberately follow Jesus. And as we grow, we bring Jesus' mind, Jesus' outlook into everything we do, especially our relationships, dealing with other people. And of course, especially our marriages. That's where you get the ability to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Without this, you're just going to be good old self-centered you. Without this, you're going to be critical of others because there's plenty to criticize in other people. Without this, you will be unforgiving when others wrong you because you'll forget how you have wronged them. The Bible says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Jesus. And the amazing thing is that when Jesus is reverenced, it's very freeing in your life. You can be criticized without being devastated, without being uh, defensive. You can criticize, but you can criticize tenderly because you know you're a sinner deserving judgment as well as the person you're criticizing. And you can forgive because you're, you're constantly aware that you're being forgiven. You see, this is where the power to serve our spouse in marriage comes from. Without this, I don't know how on earth you can make a marriage work. I really don't. Because all you have is your own strength and your own wisdom and your own will. Now, let me tell you, in our culture, which is a post-Christian culture, man, we are deadly afraid of this kind of talk. Obligations and promises made to other people, commitments we need to keep, 
serving others, submitting to others, dying to self. Yeah. Instead, we want to talk about actualizing our full potential or exercising our own personal freedoms or experiencing self-fulfillment or achieving personal satisfaction and happiness. Friends, this is just one of the many places where a Christian way of looking at things collides head on with our culture. God says, for example, that marriage matters. We looked at that the first week we dove into this this little series. Marriage is a God-given institution for the most intimate of human relationships. And because of this, Christians do not cohabitate. Christians do not give themselves to others sexually for recreation. Unless a person is willing to make a public, permanent, exclusive promise to share all of life with you, they do not love you. Not the way they're supposed to. Not in a God-like way, which is covenantal and sacrificial. I'm kind of digressing back to that first message. But my point in this message is this. Friends, your marriage will not work unless you make a decision to keep investing in the person you married. And you make that investment by dying to self. And you make that investment even when your feelings for them are not so hot. That will happen to you in a marriage if it hasn't happened already. Even when they may not be deserving your investment, you make it anyway. What you do is uh, when they, when your feelings are flagging, what you do is you invest in your spouse. You love your Spouse, you act tenderly toward your spouse, you speak the truth to your spouse, you serve your spouse, you listen to your spouse, you pray with and for your spouse, you are patient with your spouse, you forgive your spouse. Why? Well, out of reverence for Jesus, out of gratitude that Jesus treats you this way. And this kind of love will get you through difficult times, hopefully to better places. Friends, if you want your marriage to work, then decide to love your spouse the way Jesus has loved you. And that is with a servant's heart. So here are some questions. How are you loving your spouse? Could you make a list of ways that you've gone about loving your spouse? How are you serving them? Do you pray for them? Do you pray with them? Do you set aside time just to be with them? Like you set aside time for so many other things. Do you listen to them when they're talking to you? Or can you just not wait to tell them what you think they need to hear so they'll stop doing what they're doing or start doing what they should be doing? Do you listen to them? Here's one, very convicting. Do you do anything sacrificial for them? Do you do anything for them just to serve them? You know, if you're married, you need to keep in mind and evidence in practical ways that your spouse is primary in your life. Paul here in the 
letter to the Ephesians quotes Genesis. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, hold to, hold fast to his wife. And that statement is interesting. It doesn't shock us uh, so much today like maybe once upon a time it would have. And that is because we live in a society that does not emphasize the responsibility um, that children have to their parents. If you were living in a, a different culture, a different society, maybe Asian or Latin culture might be an example of this. There, the responsibility of children to their parents is something that's greatly emphasized. Um, it, it's not emphasized so much in a Western culture. And so a statement like that, that, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, is a little bit more shocking in a culture like that because those cultures frequently put the primary relationship as that of the parents to the children and the children to the parents. Children are taught to respect and to revere their parents, to accept the authority of their parents, and to care for them even in old age. And certainly the parent-child relationship is a, is a hugely, a profoundly important one. We live with the marks, right? Positive marks, negative marks uh, of growing up in uh, our, our parents' homes, to be sure. So what could be more, more profound or more primary or more foundational than that of a parent-child relationship? Well, God says the husband-wife relationship is more profound, is more important than even the parent-child relationship. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's interesting. God did not put a parent with a child in the garden. He put a husband with a wife in the garden. And I think a possible implication of that is if you get married, the primary relationship in your life has got to be your spouse. Look at it this way. You should spend more uh, money or more time or, or more creative energy, more effort, more resources on making that relationship flourish than any other relationship you have. And if you're not, you are making a very, very significant mistake, I believe. I think that's Paul's point in Ephesians 5, 28. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Husbands, you can't make a more important investment than investing in your spouse. He who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, refusing to love your wife, refusing to love your spouse is refusing to love yourself. It will cause serious negative consequences for you. And this is Paul's way of saying your spouse must be your highest priority, humanly speaking. That relationship must have your steady attention. Steady attention. And when it doesn't, you will suffer for it, period. <laughs> you know, something I've observed in myself, I've also observed this just in general. If everything around you is kind of shaky, you know, but your marriage is strong, you know, your job is shaky, your health is a little iffy, uh, maybe even your kids aren't doing too well or that whole thing looks a little shaky, but your marriage is really rooted, grounded, strong, you're serving each other, well, guess what? You will have incredible strength together with that spouse to move into those difficult situations. I've observed that many times. I've observed it in myself. And if everything around you is real strong, but your marriage is weak, just the opposite. The job's going great. Your health seems to be good. The kids seem like they're doing okay. But your marriage, whoa, it's shaky. Well, guess what? I predict it won't be long before you will move into any situation you face with a very significant amount of weakness because that relationship is weak. 
And I would just note that in a very real sense, your marriage is sort of, humanly speaking again, kind of the center of everything you do and, and even of who you are. And if you neglect it, little else matters. You might build great buildings. You may accomplish great things. You might do wonderful ministry, but internally you will be empty. You will be fragile. You will be weak. When the Bible says you have to leave your father and mother and hold fast to your spouse, I think what it's really saying is be very careful that nothing comes before your marriage in terms of priority. Because if something does, it will introduce all kinds of problems, all kinds of miseries, all kinds of pathologies into your life. And it doesn't really matter who it is or, or what it is, hobbies, career, children, parents, friends, doesn't matter. If they get in front of your priority to your spouse, you're going to experience all kinds of problems. If you neglect your spouse, if you make them a lesser priority in your life than someone else, you will pay dearly. Why? Because you're ignoring a simple biblical principle. And when you ignore biblical principles, there's always a cost associated with it, always. I'll tell you, God doesn't make up silly institutions and give them silly rules. And when he made up the institution of marriage, when he described how a husband and a wife were supposed to love one another, he was describing reality, how things are supposed to work. And when we ignore him or disobey him, it usually results in a great deal of hurt, a great deal of pain, a great deal of brokenness and dysfunction. I said this a few weeks ago, marriage is an institution that God gave us, and he gave us this institution even before sin entered into the world, which is so interesting to me. From the beginning, it was an institution that was meant to change us, to actually grow us, even before sin. Imagine when Adam and Eve would have started to have had children, but no sin in the picture. You think there would have been any adjustments still to make? I think so. <laughs> They'd have been figuring out... Uh, Adam, do you have one of the twins? I've got one over here. I mean, you know, they would have still been changing, adjusting, growing, I think. Marriage is an institution given to teach us how to love sacrificially. Not just talk about it, but do it. Get, marriage is an institution that would teach us how to work together with someone else to bring glory to God. And then after sin entered the world, well, wow. Marriage becomes a tool in God's hand to grow us up, to make us more like Jesus. That's why we can't neglect it if we've entered into this institution. Marriage has the power to change us. Marriage has the power to show us who we really are. It has the power to tear us down in ways we need to be torn down and eventually build us back up. Marriage is not an institution. I've said this before. Uh, marriage is not an institution to make us happy. It's an institution to make us holy, which, oh yeah, by the way, happens to be the path towards happiness. You won't get there any other way. You know, uh, I never ever would have seen the depths of my own sin were it not for marriage. Because I thought I was a pretty great guy. I mean, what woman wouldn't be just tickled to death to marry a guy like me? <laughs> And then I got married. Turns out my sight was off a little bit. And I have seen in marriage that God takes my own selfishness and uses it against me for my own good. That's what I observe over and over in marriage. In marriage, all my faults, all my prejudices, all my self-centered biases get exposed and they make me feel miserable. 
And because I've made this commitment to someone else and because things aren't working, I've either got to deal with them, meaning I need to grow, or I will have to choose to be miserable or just blame all the problems on my spouse and then eventually leave looking for another spouse that will be more perfect than my first one. That's what the Bible calls foolishness. And what our God says to us is, I love you. Look at how my son has died for you. Come to me, be filled with my spirit. Let my son be your savior. Let him grow a servant's heart in you. And then you'll have exactly what you need, the love that you're looking for, but you will also have the ability to love others, chiefly your spouse, sacrificially. Pray with me. Father, this relationship of marriage is uh, in some ways like all of our other relationships, broken, fragile, difficult, uh, impossible for us to get right without your uh, filling us with your spirit, without your teaching us from your word, without you reshaping uh, who we are in the inner person. And Father, in our marriages, it just so happens that that's, that's the relationship where we see our failures most clearly and, and, and feel them most deeply. And, and so God, we just acknowledge on the one hand, we thank you for this relationship that's meant to change us. And on the other hand, we cry out to you, God, to do exactly that, change us. Help us to love our spouse the way you have loved us, sacrificially. Father, as we prepare to come to this table, would you help us to be able to see our own sin and to repent of it? Make us aware of how we need to serve our spouse where we are not. Forgive us our sins, cleanse us from our unrighteousness and let our marriages become relationships that illustrate the love of your son for his bride, the church. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.